beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever felt really discouraged? Difficulties don't just happen to unbelievers. Christians also go through setbacks and disappointments in life. There can also be difficulties because of sinful things that people do to us or to our loved ones. Such things happen to God's people everywhere. Sometimes we get ourselves into situations because of our own sins. Sins can have devastating consequences. And God warns about that in his word. The ultimate consequence is that of hell. And the good news is that our God also shows us the way of salvation. We're looking forward at this time to celebrating the birth of our Savior. Now, what a miracle that God sent his only begotten Son into this world. Prophets in Old Testament times spoke about this centuries earlier. Isaiah, for example, prophesied about his coming. And the passage we read together proclaims this good news. It's from the book of Isaiah, a prophet whose 40-year-long ministry began about seven centuries before the birth of Christ. Isaiah prophesied against breaking the covenant, the relationship that the Lord God had established with his people. God's people were disobeying his word, and as a result, judgment was coming. They would end up in exile in a foreign country far away from their homes. And Isaiah's warnings about this sound grim. But his God-given mission was to call God's people to repent. If they would turn away from sin and ask God for forgiveness, he would give them new life in fellowship with him. Despite Isaiah's warnings, the people continued in their apostasy. They refused to repent. About 150 years later, they finally did go into exile. And God let their enemies take them away from the promised land. Isaiah knew this would happen and prophesied about it. However, God also called him to proclaim the grace of God. In our text, Isaiah speaks of the coming of the Messiah as the servant of the Lord. And this servant would come to save his people from the darkness of sin. He would come to teach them to live in the light of God's grace. And this compels us to look beyond circumstances where we would say, this is hopeless. We learn about the miracle of God's forgiving love. He gives hope to people facing the shambles caused by their life of sin. And so we come to the theme for this afternoon. Don't be discouraged. Behold 
the servant of the Lord. And we'll focus on three points. The characteristics of his servant, the conduct of his servant, and finally the task of his servant. Don't be discouraged. Behold the servant of the Lord. We'll focus on the characteristics, the conduct, and the task of this servant. Isaiah had to announce the exile to God's people because of their sins. But even before this punishment took place, God gave them hope. He would not reject his people forever. There would be a time of grace. Isaiah makes that very clear in the second part of his prophecies. This part begins with the well-known words of chapter 40, the verses 1 to 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry out that her warfare is ended. Isaiah is prophesying about the end of the exile. Who would dare to hope for this? Didn't God's people deserve to be forgotten? The Lord foresees his people will indeed think that he has forgotten them. After all, their sins have led to judgment. Toward the end of chapter 40, we read, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Imagine that. Sinners complaining that God has been giving them a hard time. And nevertheless, the Lord comforts his people. He points to his strength. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. They have no reason to find fault with him. He is willing and able to show them his mercy. And then come promises of grace. He gives power to the faint. The promise of renewed strength is available to all who wait for the Lord. The idols that the Israelites worshipped couldn't save them. In chapter 41, the Lord makes it clear that he is quite different from such idols. He governs all of history, and he hasn't written them off. We read in chapter 41, verse 14, Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord, Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. The closing words of chapter 41 declare that idols are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. And the essential point is this. Forget about the idols. Pay attention to the Lord. He can and will give his people a future a new future. 
In our text, the Lord has a very special announcement for his people. Behold, my servant. He presents this servant by this prophecy about 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And he wants his people to look forward to the coming of their Messiah. They need to listen carefully. And then they will recognize him when he appears. This servant will be a powerful instrument in God's hands. His coming will be a blessing for Israel and the nations. Our text also points to the glory of the servant of the Lord. In verse 1, the Lord calls him, My chosen. And that's an indication of royal dignity. This servant on whom the Spirit of God rests is more than any ordinary human being. He is the chosen one, singled out by the Lord to be the Messiah. And by this announcement, the Lord offers hope to his people. Behold, my servant. And this servant comes to bring salvation on behalf of the Lord. And we have learned who he is. In the light of God's further revelation, we know our text refers to Jesus Christ. God's people in Isaiah's day sinned. And sin is also our problem. And that's why God sent his son into this world in which we live. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of God's love. He came to be the Savior of sinners. The words of our text remind us of Jesus Christ in various ways. I have put my Spirit upon him, says the Lord. The Spirit of God descended on Jesus Christ after John the Baptist baptized him in the Jordan River. That fulfilled the prophecy of our text. But when it happened, the voice from heaven didn't say, Behold my servant, in whom my soul delights. The voice said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And that sheds further light on who the servant of the Lord is. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. And the term, my son, at the time of the fulfillment of our text, is a further revelation. At the Jordan River, the Father proclaimed his unique bond with Jesus Christ. It would not be the only time this happened. We read in Matthew 17 that later during his ministry, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And while they were on that mountain, Moses and Elijah appeared before them, talking with Jesus. At that time, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, 
This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And this is how God the Father made it clear that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the prophecy of our text. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Jesus Christ is the chosen one in whom God delights. He is the Son of God in whom the Father is well pleased. The Son of God humbled himself by assuming our human nature. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, says the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 verse 7. And who can fathom the mystery of his conception and birth? Who can fathom the fact that Jesus Christ is true God and true man? Behold my servant whom I uphold, says our text. Why such a statement? whom I uphold? Consider how difficult the sufferings of our Savior were. We know from the Gospel accounts how much Jesus Christ needed support. His human nature recoiled in horror from the prospect of suffering on the cross. He had to wrestle in Gethsemane to subject his flesh to the will of his Father. He had to bear our sin. And that was a burden beyond our ability to comprehend. After all, God's wrath against sin is immeasurably great. And Jesus Christ received the support he needed. The Spirit of God was upon him in a unique way, equipping him for service. The sacrifice had to be made. In Gethsemane, an angel came to strengthen the Son of God in his agony. And that was for us. The work of salvation had to go on. And the climax of his suffering came during his crucifixion. There he hung, forsaken by God, bearing the punishment we deserve for our sins. Remember and rejoice in his struggles, his sufferings. Remember and rejoice in his faithfulness and love. Look to him in faith and rest assured, my sins are forgiven. Jesus Christ has taken them upon himself. They are many. Only God knows how many they are. And Jesus Christ knows from bitter experience what it means to bear them. He bore all our sins, dying for us on the cross. And by his sufferings and death, he paid the price to obtain deliverance for us from the power of sin and death. Behold, my servant, says the Lord in the Old Testament. 
And the people of God in Isaiah's time sinned. And nevertheless, the Lord had the good news of forgiveness proclaimed to them. The Lord kept his word. In the New Testament, the good news resounds, calling us to look to Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness for all who trust in him, the only begotten Son of God, for salvation. And never think, I don't dare believe that God's grace is for me too. The Lord says, Behold, my servant. And that's a command. The Lord wants you to pay attention to. Focus on Jesus Christ, who humbled himself as a servant for our salvation. And believe that he is the promised Savior. And you will be saved. If you don't do this, you are rejecting the proclamation of God's forgiving love. In Jesus Christ, God has shown his faithfulness and grace. We have sinned and continue to sin. But the Lord lets us hear the same gospel in its fullness, calling us to faith and repentance. Our text also tells us about the conduct of the servant of the Lord. His conduct is surprising in view of his special relationship with the Lord. He is God's chosen one, and he is powerful. But his way of working differs from those who wield power in this world. Worldly influence usually goes with a display of strength. It's often combined with a lot of rhetoric, fancy words, long speeches, the world expects this. Whoever wants to influence society will therefore try to attract attention and be popular. Public relations are important. Our text tells how different the conduct of the servant of the Lord will be. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He is the instrument of the Lord to work salvation in this world, but he will not be a loud attention seeker. His style will differ radically from what the world might expect. When he appears among his own people, it will be hard for them to recognize him. The Jews in the days of Jesus were looking for a political messiah. They dreamed of military power and the restoration of political independence. And they had difficulty reconciling their expectations with the conduct of Jesus. Their hopes extended far beyond the bounds of our text. Many Jews marveled at his teachings, but they had difficulty with his background. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? 
Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? If people had given thought to our text, they would have recognized him. There was no reason to take offense. Didn't the Lord tell his people what to expect? Wouldn't simplicity characterize the servant of the Lord? Wasn't the prophecy fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Don't let his way of speaking and doing things offend you. This is the way it had to be right up to the cross. Behold, my servant, says the Lord. But the coming of this servant was a stumbling block to the Jews. They hated Jesus Christ and finally crucified him. And when apostles later proclaimed the good news of his coming, it was folly to the Gentiles. And nevertheless, the Apostle Paul reminds us, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Nowadays, many measure the value of human life in terms of productivity and achievement. And these worldly standards easily influence us. How do you see yourself? How do you look at others? Do you regard yourself or someone else as inferior based on worldly standards? Do you measure your life in terms of what you do or have accomplished? Our position before God doesn't depend on our achievements. It depends on God's work of grace in Christ. And that should shape our view of ourselves and each other. The word pictures in our text speak vividly of the care of our Savior. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Reeds grow in marshy places. They break easily. A bruised reed is even more fragile. It's also not difficult to extinguish the flame of a barely burning wick. Our lives can look very much like a bruised reed or a faintly burning wick. Or maybe we look okay, but we feel like a bruised reed or a smoldering wick. You would like to be strong and on fire for the Lord, but for whatever reason, you don't have what it takes. Will Jesus Christ look down on you? Not at all. Behold, my servant, says the Lord. Jesus Christ came to restore life ruined by the consequences of sin. Believe in him 
and let him assure you of his love. He is the chosen one in whom the Lord delights. He is full of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't overlook insignificant people. The world may regard us as insignificant, but this doesn't mean our Savior will forget us or overlook us. We may be of no account to others, yet we may count on his loving care. Remember Christ's attitude toward the weak and vulnerable members of his people. He didn't look down on the poor and the weak. Neither should we as followers of Jesus Christ. Don't be discouraged. Behold the servant of the Lord. We've considered the characteristics and conduct of his servant. Let's now focus on the task of his servant. This is our third point. Our text refers to the task of the servant several times. Look at Isaiah 42, verse 1. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, verse 3 tells us, He will faithfully bring forth justice. And in verse 4 we read, He will continue his work till he has established justice on earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Jesus Christ had all the peoples of the earth in mind during his ministry. He didn't want to be a Messiah according to worldly expectations and standards. His work didn't depend on the applause of the public. At times, he even forbade people to make him known. In the land of Israel, he laid the foundation for the worldwide proclamation of the gospel. He traveled the route of humiliation, suffering, and death on the cross. It was the only way to fulfill his task as the Messiah prophesied by Scripture. And the good news of what he did concerns us all. He is the God-given Savior of the world. He gained the victory over the power of sin and death. And because he diligently did his work, Sinners like you and I can live in peace with God. And through the ministry of the church, Christ proclaims this to you. He commanded his disciples and through them the church to make disciples of all nations. And faithful churches continue to carry out that command. People need to understand who Jesus is. And ministers of the word baptize converts into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Followers of Jesus need to learn to observe all that he has commanded. And doing the will of Jesus includes seeking forgiveness where we go wrong and asking for strength to obey him. 
After all, he wants justice to be established on this earth. And bringing forth justice is a central element in the task of our Savior as the servant of the Lord. We see true justice when people live according to God's will. We live such a life by grace out of thankfulness to God. The world needs to see lives transformed by the peace and love which only God gives through Jesus Christ. Behold, my servant, says the Lord. Focus on Jesus Christ. He fulfilled all the demands of God's law on our behalf. He paid the penalty for our sins and opened up the way for us to live in peace with God. He teaches us to love our neighbor as ourselves, living in harmony with them. And the justice Christ brings is important for people throughout the world. Despite human weaknesses and sin, our text is being fulfilled. The coastlands mentioned in verse 4 of our text are symbols of faraway places. In Isaiah 41 verse 5, they are mentioned parallel with the ends of the earth. The proclamation of Christ's work and his commands continues to be passed on in this world. And our text concludes with the words, the coastlands wait for his law. Heathen nations may not yet know what exactly will fulfill their deepest needs, but they will find out that heathen religion can't bring true satisfaction. Even without knowing him, heathen people need Christ the way dry land needs rain. When the awaited rain does fall, it brings life where there was only barrenness. And the reference to the coastlands waiting for his law doesn't just refer to God's commandments, but to all the teachings concerning God and his will. Think of the instruction that we find throughout the Old Testament. The riches of this instruction are displayed through Jesus Christ. Life in the grip of idolatry is life in darkness. But Jesus Christ gives true light. Our text looks forward to the fruit of Christ's sufferings and death, his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. It points to the riches of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the followers of Jesus Christ after he ascended into heaven. And after that, the gospel went out to the heathen nations. Through Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, there is salvation. And this salvation is not only for Israel, it's also for people of faraway islands, people throughout the world. The news of Jesus Christ is of worldwide significance. He continues to work through the proclamation of the gospel. He uses his power 
to achieve his goal. No setbacks in evangelism and missions can weaken him in his efforts or discourage him. God's word was fulfilled and it continues to be fulfilled. And never take offense at the simple way in which this takes place. Jesus Christ is at work even today as we gather to hear the word of God. The world equates power with numbers and influence. But what are we? We are relatively few and not very influential. Things have changed little since Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. That's the normal state of being for the church in this world. Christ reveals his power in our weakness. He works through us, even though we have many limitations. If we note the progress of his work, we should do so with a sense of awe and humility. There's no reason for boasting. His way of working takes away any basis for human pride. The building blocks are not worth more than the cornerstone. Behold, my servant, says the Lord. Believe in him. He is the only way of salvation. There is no other. And the prophecy concerning the servant of the Lord is being fulfilled. Praise God for that. Through his word and spirit, Jesus Christ equips us for service. Live and work as children of God, his chosen ones. And let him use you as his instruments as he continues his work. It's a glorious work that points to him. He is the source of divine love and true justice that gives hope to this world. Amen.